This is an ABC podcast. Amar Singh has been doing volunteer work for decades now, for the Salvos, the Red Cross and the Sydney Olympics. Amar set up a group that's called Turbans for Australia, which has done grocery drives for people in flood-affected zones in New South Wales and brought hay to people in drought-ravaged Canamble. In other words, Amar Singh is a legend and a much-loved figure. And his work's been recognised by the Australia Day Committee, which has made him the local hero for 2023. For Amar, community volunteering fulfils a central tenet of his Sikh philosophy that makes him a happy man to boot. So it's no wonder he's been recognised as an outstanding Australian. But Amar's sense of belonging to Australia was sorely tested along the way. Amar was expected to change his name at school after his family migrated here. He suffered abuse after the September 11 attacks and his name even showed up on a hit list made by a classmate who'd been inspired by the Columbine High School massacre in the United States. But funnily enough, it was when Amar decided to lean more into his Sikh heritage when he stopped cutting his hair and grew out his beard and started to wear a traditional turban that he felt more Australian than ever. Hello, Amar. Congratulations. Thank you. I much appreciate it. It's been a huge honour from a member from a Sikh faith and as an Australian to get this award and I mean, I'm lost for words. It still doesn't sink in and go, wow. Do you get any time for yourself when you're a local hero? Because I know that they, they get you to travel everywhere to give speeches. Are you having a busy year? Busy year plus our charities are ever busy. You know, we're still doing sort of similar to COVID numbers in food relief. So that part of me who I was before the award is still going very strong and I'm really happy about that, that we're still out there helping people. You grew up in the Punjab area of northern India. Now, shoot me down in flames. The, the, what I know of it is it's one of the oldest parts of India in terms of like there's been ongoing human civilization there since the year dot pretty much. What part of Punjab did you grow up in? So I come from a small town called Nabha, which was a princely state back in the days and it was one of the last Sikh empires to fall to the British Raj. Uh, and our king um, was uh, known as a very religious figure within the, the Sea Kingdoms. And still, to where I lived, uh, his palace was only a couple of minutes uh, on a bike ride when I was little. In, in the whole city, there are palaces that sit there. In fact, one of his other palaces was turned into a college which is a pretty famous college uh, in Punjab. And another one was turned into a big convent school, which is one of the esteemed schools in Punjab. It's called the Punjab Public School, which has boarding, horse riding, you name it. It's over hectares of land. So a lot of infrastructure that was put in by the king back back in those times is being still being used and it looks marvellous. You were there till you were 15. What, what do you remember of family life in that part of the world? Being a 15-year-old, up to a bit of mischief, you know, hang around with friends, uh, you know, ride around your bicycle to go to different parts of, of the town. You know, we in school holidays, we had a little pilgrimage, me and my three other mates. Uh, one is in Canada now, other one's in, in the States. So we used to ride our bike. One would sit on the front of the, uh, the road and the other one would sit on the back of the carrier. Three on a bike, wow. Little push bike yeah. and, you know, one, will, <laughs> the one on the back will actually push from the back when we, things got tough. But that's what kids do, you know, little silly things we get off to. And it was absolutely amazing uh, riding our bicycle through a small country town and going to this temple just as a fun thing to do back in the days. And it was absolutely amazing. Just the open fields, beautiful clouds and some of the memorable times. The holiest of holies in Punjab area is the Golden Temple in Amritsar, which stands in the middle of this extraordinary pool of water. Did you ever visit there as a kid? We did. In fact, it's one of the most sacred shrines for Sikhs. Where my town is, it's about seven hours drive from Amritsar and it's about similar distance to Delhi. So we're sort of in the middle, but um, again, that place holds a significant. It's just beautiful to go there um, and do seva, as we call it, a service. You can help out in the kitchen, you can clean the floors, scrub the tiles, and it's all about reflecting on yourself to say, you know, how, how lucky we are as a person. You know, you've got people who, are, you know, in many sense are disabled. And yet you are the full body and you're lucky to be able to carry yourself. So it, it's a lot of varied experiences when you go to the temple and it's absolutely amazing. Is it a place of meditation, as you say? Is it a place of communal worship as well? That's right. Uh, the Golden Temple, the Darbar Sahib, as it's commonly known, is set up in a little bit different way. So the prayer hall inside can only accommodate uh, 
a handful of people because that's the way it's been built. But pilgrims go right around, they sit around the steps of the uh, sarovar, as we call it, the, the pool, where people take a bath as well, which is a quite sacred thing to do. So you can sit around the whole palace and they've got rooms that you can stay in and premises. Uh, as a visitor, you can uh, get a room to stay overnight as well. RIC State spent several days yes, visiting yes, the temple it, then. It's an absolutely amazing journey and it's not very far from the Pakistan border as well. Because remember, Punjab back in the days used to be one big state. That's why it's called Punjab, land of five rivers. So two and a half of them are actually in Pakistan now. So then comes the day where your parents say, we're packing up and we're going to this place called Australia. How did you feel about leaving your childhood home to come to this, this far-off place called Australia? I think just like a kid, you know, you get promised a new, you're going to get a new toy or a lolly, you go like, oh, that's it, I've made it to the end of the world. So for me, it was um, uh, a new journey, new thing. I was like really looking forward to it, thinking I'm going to have a great life, I'm going to do this, I'm going to meet new people, go to a brand new country and new style of living. But again, there was that pain go, I'm saying goodbye to a house I grew up in for the last time. And your friends. my family, my friends. It was... Very emotional as well. And even now when I look back at it, go, wow, you know, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Did you have English at the time? Punjabi is our mother tongue, Essex, and then we also speak Hindi. But I went to a convent school, so I did not have this level of expert spoken English. We did speak English at school, but it was sort of broken. And the, the main issue that I had coming here was trying to understand people. Um, because, you know, when you speak it as your mother tongue, it's quite fluent and, and it goes on. <laughs> then you're right there and it's all, yeah, mate, you go, right? There you go, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, not bad. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So um, how was it when you did arrive? Was it quite strange? It must have been quiet, I suppose. I don't know. What was it like when you got here? In fact, in a way, quiet, but also busy. Go, wow, everyone's moving, running around. You know, people are going places, landing at the airport. Uh, that was the first flight I ever took, you know, getting in a plane. So... It was a lot of new experiences, all jam-packed in one thing. And you arrive at a house, uh, we lived in Campbelltown back then, to a house that looked very different and go, wow, you know, this very quiet streets. You know, where are the, the vendors that sell, you know, vegetables and other things in the street? You go, nothing like that. Oh, we actually have to go to the supermarket to buy the stuff. I mean, we have shops there as well back in Punjab, but the street vendors will come and they'll sell stuff on the street. So it was a different lifestyle altogether in a different neighbourhood, but it was quite unique and very pleasant and very friendly, so can't complain. When my wife migrated to Australia from Singapore, she was nine, and they went from a busy apartment block in Singapore where there were a lot of hawker stands downstairs and people coming and going all the time, everyone going to each other's festivals and what have you, and then they went to the outer, outer, outer burbs of Melbourne, and the thing that she said really shocked her was, first of all, it was, it was so quiet at night and hearing the strange bird song, the, the different kind of animals, and it just seemed like a whole other world to it. Did you remember feeling like that? So I come from a, a small town, uh, which was fairly big for a small town. Uh, in fact, our house was on one of the main roads. So if you looked on the other side of the road, you could see miles and miles of rice paddocks, sugarcane farms, uh, wheat crop. So you could see the farms and that. So we come from semi-rural and uh, my uncle had a farm as well on the other side of the town. He had a dairy farm and a chicken farm. So it was a lot of that you saw. So our life was sort of coming from a quieter town as well. We didn't live in one of the big cities that you could not see your neighbour, but it was different. So what sort of rules did you set up for you, you and your siblings once you arrived in Australia? Uh, there wasn't many rules. It was just, you know, we all got along and actually brought us closer as a family as well because we didn't know anyone else. You know, normally you fight with your siblings. I remember my older sister, when we were growing up, we used to fight like crazy. But here we are, you know, even till now, we're best of friends. So it was very different. You bond with your family because you don't have the other mates and friends that you would rely on generally. And it was just a beautiful life. You'll actually learn off each other and teach new things to each other. And then, then the other experiences that I had at school were random people welcome you to school, come and give you a big hug. I go, oh, okay, what's this? This is not normal, especially coming from a girl. Like, hey, what is going on here? So there were the two kind of people that you met, the people that welcomed you to the country, others like, why the hell are you here? And so this is when you had to change your name as such. What did they, what did they want you to change your name to? That's right. So my name, Amar, they said, oh, it's hard to pronounce. Let's name it's you It's not. Two syllables. <laughs> Amar, right? I know, Amar, yeah. Yeah. right? But it, it was that thing and being naive and go, coming from a school in Punjab where teachers have a, a huge respect as a student. So it's like, you know, you said, oh, okay, 
you didn't argue back with them. So schooling was a whole new experience for me as well, because we come from a very rigid schooling system where the teacher will actually punish you guys, stand outside the class because you haven't done your work or show us what you've done. Whereas here was very laid back. You know, you relied on handouts and uh, photocopied letters and you looked on overhead projectors and those TVs used to be built into the classroom back in the days, right? Now kids wouldn't sit know that. Very different, <laughs> mate. So do you regret now accepting the name David instead of Omar? I think if I didn't accept that name back then, it wouldn't give me the story that I have today. So everything that happens to you happens for a reason. And for me, I, I take the positive side of all of it and go, look, whatever it was, was part of me, part of who I am today. And I'm glad in a way it was because it showed me the other perspective that why we need to call people by their name. And even as an ethnic person myself, I come across others' names and go, oh, sorry, can you repeat that? It makes me even more intrigued and go, I have to respect and learn how to correctly pronounce their name because that's who they are. What did Australian school life, how did it compare to school life in the Punjab in terms of like, Five days a week at school, from nine to three. Yeah, but Punjab was six days. So when I spoke to some of my mates in the early days and uh, wrote them letters, they were like, oh, we don't have school on Saturdays. Like, what? Are you serious? So what do you do on Saturdays? Oh, nothing. It's the weekend. We have two days <laughs> off off. Like, oh, my God. Slack. <laughs> I know. That was a huge change of schooling. Like five days and you actually don't get homework. Because in, in our sort of schooling, you get a lot of homework. You got to do a lot of revision. We actually used to have tuitions after the school as well, some of the hardest subjects. And so you finish school, come home, have something to eat, and then get on your bike and away you go to another tuition or two. Or sometimes the day will start six in the morning. Well, you go to a morning tuition and then come back and go to school. So it was pretty full-on schooling. Tell me about the one time you got suspended, how that came about. Oh, it was coming out of um, some of this racism that I faced. Uh, let's be honest, there was a lot of that back back then and even today. It's Now it's in more subtle ways. Before, if somebody didn't like you, just come and set it to your face. So there was a group of people that didn't like me at the school. I had, you know, you go to a class and you sit somewhere and others will come bit later after the class started and they expect you to move. I was like, I'm sitting here before you, why should I move? So that sort of words got heated up and then one of the girls and the guy that were there, her boyfriend came to my next class and we got into a bit of a scuffle and I'm sitting in my, I think it was science for life class or science for something and that got us to the principal's office um, because the other person had got into trouble before. So they were suspended, uh, three of them were suspended for five days and I got suspended for three. Because right, you wouldn't move from a seat that this guy thought he'd reserved for himself. That's right. You know, supposedly reserved for himself. But that was the thing. I, I learned to stand up for myself early enough. But it wasn't probably the right way. And I think I feel more comfortable what I do now. Then there's the 1999 Columbine High School Massacre in the United States where a couple of students went on a gun rampage and murdered 12 students there and, and a teacher. Tell me what happened in your school at your school in the wake of that that I mentioned at the start. Got off the bus at school that day, um, I remember, and seeing all these cameras set up with this big old tripod and, you know, those old media vans you guys used to have with this big dish antennas on top, like, oh, what's going on here? And we're walking past cameras and think, okay. So we got to the school and one of the teachers called us in to say, look, we need to talk to you guys. Okay. And that's when I find out there was apparently a list uh, because, you know, some of the other guys had issues with the other side and they used to have, get into little punch-ups and scuffles at school. So they sort of named all of the migrant kids because we used to sit around one tree uh, right next to our uh, main office area and they said, oh, they made a list of all the migrant kids that, you know, we're going to hurt them in some way, shape or form, but they didn't share the whole details with us. But it's quite scary. You go, and me being the newcomer in the school, they're like, what did I do wrong to them? So it's quite scary at that time, but also seeing that kids can be silly that they just picked up this notion that what they did in America, we can do the same here or, or whatever their thought process was at the time, I think it wasn't coming from a very developed brain. Do you know how serious that intent was or was it just some kid writing something really horrible? Do you have any idea of whether that person might have actually had any serious intent to go about enacting the kind of things he was writing about? Not sure if I can answer that to the right knowledge, but I think he did get expelled from the school that one person that was leader of the whole pack. So there's a group? There's a group? Yeah, there was a group. I can't remember what they were called. Or They all used to hang around so a similar area. 
So one of the guys did get expelled from school. So it could have turned out serious, you know, if somebody had brought in something to hurt other kids or whatever might happen. But look, glad it didn't go that far. The teachers picked her up and sorted out pretty quickly. So you started volunteering after that. Why did? Why do you think you started volunteering after that incident, Omar? Because um, there would be opportunities go, help is needed in the library or, you know, we need volunteers to do X, Y, Z. And that's how I find out about some of the volunteering opportunities within the school, the, the, the door knock appeals and some of the other ones. So like, oh, wow, how can I get involved? So I asked the teacher and then she registered me for it and away we go. Why, why did you want to do that though? What, what was the motivation at this point? I think even before that, Going back to Punjab, uh, I remember volunteering at our local temple, which was uh, a walk, uh, short walk from our house, and going with my mom and my siblings, you know, we'll help out in the kitchen or serving of the meal. So it's part of who we are to help out in your community. And I think the sooner we apply that to a wider society, the better it is because every culture has a lot of good, positive things. If we start bringing out those things instead of the negative stuff, we will make this country a great place. Was there some kind of change you were trying to affect in yourself as well as within your community? I think that probably the change was trying to find my place in society and go about things. Um, so that, uh, you know, those negative things didn't really faze me that much. Uh, of course, it bothered me that, you know, why me? Why are they picking on me? I've just come to the country. I don't have any beef with you. So like whatever what walked myself into. But again, there was a lot of other things. I, I remember a local shopkeeper that I used to hang around, buy some lollies. And she was a lovely lady. Uh, it was a, a family-run store. And she would talk to me about work experience, about things that were in Australia and other things. So I think as a kid, I learned very early enough that there was good people, there were bad people, and end of the day, what you did mattered. You could dwell on the wrongs in your life and not excel anywhere and, and go, go to a very dark place, or you could find the positiveness in life and go, look, this is the way I'm going to go and pick up pick up those things and run with it. That's what I did. I don't know if Australians generally volunteer as much as they used to, maybe 50, 60 years ago. And my parents' generation probably volunteered a lot more than, than people do now. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, I suppose. Was it a way of really embedding yourself in the community then, Omar? I think it was second nature because I didn't have any friend and that early enough to go hang around with or do things. So I was like, how do I you know, kill my time? I'll do this. And that, that's how I started. And in a way, I feel lucky I did that because that taught me a lot of new things. How to be confident, to speak to people. Because in volunteering, you could feel when you went up to somebody, nobody, uh, no matter if your English was a little bit broken or you were hesitant, people were still willing to listen. So it sort of gave you that practice run as well, uh, how to deal with people. So you have to find the social courage to approach yeah, people. That's right. Uh, complete strangers and, and have a conversation with them. So where did you start volunteering? I started, I can't remember exactly now, uh, either it was the Red Cross door knock appeal or the Edinburgh Care Flight, one of those things. And we ended up after we were given us, uh, we started off at the SES in uh, Lumia, which is next to Minto, um, Campbelltown area. And then we were given some streets to walk around. Then we came back there and there was like a barbecue. So I vaguely remember that. It was just like all good old thing, you know, you walk around houses asking people for money and then you came back. And I got a appreciation certificate after that, which I still hold till now. Proof that you're a nice person exactly. on paper. <laughs> How did you get selected then to be a volunteer at the Sydney 2000 Olympics? I think it was through a local newspaper, if it was. And where did they allocate you? So I was in the Olympics Village, which is now the Newington Estate, as we know. The house got sold off and it was a really pleasant way to volunteer and get to see all the world's famous names just going about their life because it wasn't competitive. Because we were part of a residence centres. They had set up different centres that looked looked after a number of countries. So if they had any issues, they wanted to know how to catch a bus to go to the city for sightseeing or they had any issues with their, the house they were in, they would come to us and we'll help them. So that was our main point of contact. So we also had a play area where they had pool tables and some board games and other things and vending machines. Like there was a special coin for the vending machine you put in there and you get a drink. So the athletes will come in, get a drink for themselves and get a drink for us. <laughs> and are you allowed to hang out with them or do you have to keep your distance? No, no, we were allowed to hang out, uh, tell them what they uh, wanted to know or hear and have book uh, services for them and guide them. And also some of the countries started inviting us for a couple of days. I remember being invited to the Cameroon, Cameroon's World Cup that they were like, oh, we've got a free seat. Do you want to come? I was like, okay. I was sitting right next to the, you know, the, the ground. It was amazing. I remember 
in a bus traveling next to Ernie Dinger because he was a big name back then. I was like, I know this guy, I know this guy. But we didn't have any cameras or selfies. I had a little uh, Kodak camera that I used to take photos with. Um, but, you know, it was just nice to be able to see people that you saw on TV go, they're here in, in front of me. And that's not something very common back where I grew up because famous people weren't walking around things. And it was great to be part of that story. So I think we as a nation really delivered the world-class games. I remember the CEO of the game said these were the world best games ever. So we put on a match show for them, for the whole world, in fact. And I remember one of the greatest things about the residence village was the food. Oh, my God. They had a whole pavilion you could see from a kebab shop to Indian to, uh, you know, McDonald's to KFC. Everything was on there. And that's where you get, you met, get to meet people as well. It was just so wonderful. They had McDonald's and KFC in the Olympic Village? And I can promise wow. you I didn't put on this weight back then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you mentioned how volunteering was, was a part of your Sikh, Sikh heritage. Have you always been a practising Sikh? No, I wasn't. Um, I was born in a Sikh family. Uh, we had the faith around us. Uh, we did go to the Gurdwara, the temple, but I wasn't practising. Uh, again, that was from birth. I was always clean-shaven. I cut my hair, uh, all my parents did, and I just followed that suit. But then in one stage of my life, you know, when because in, in our culture we do have the sort of semi-arranged marriages or arranged marriages, thinking, okay, who do I get married to? Yeah, of course, you know, was the, the first thing was to get married to somebody from my own faith and background. Uh, but then also it was like, what? how important is my faith to me? And that's how it all started, that if I'm expecting my partner uh, to be from my faith and practice my faith, to be able to t- pass on to our kids, then i got to start practicing my faith, you know. As a non-practicing Sikh, you know, you're allowed, allowed to cut your hair, allowed to have a drink, allowed to you know, eat meat and so forth. So I don't want any of that. I mean, I did for a bit, you know, when I used to go out and drink and go to clubbing and so forth, but it wasn't part of me. So I thought, look, if I'm expecting my partner to be of a certain caliber for my family going forward, I need to be that person myself. And hence my whole paradigm changed for what I wanted in a partner when I started practicing my faith. Not long after the Olympics, there were the September 11, 2001 attacks in the United States and and subsequent ones elsewhere. You're not a Muslim, but nonetheless, I suppose people might, wouldn't have been hard for people just to, someone to look at a, someone with brown skin and blame you for it. Is that what happened to you? Pretty much. Uh, coming back a few years after, I remember just uh, walking down near Ingleburn somewhere. I was at um, just a shopping strip and the little kid goes to her grandma, oh, grandma, look a bad man. And that was pretty obvious. You know, kids are kids, they speak out loud. I'm thinking, oh, my God, where are we? Like, how do an average person think on a street walking in front of me that that's okay to say or the kids have that fear in them? What are we doing wrong as a nation, as a society? Like, have we really got to this huge divide that cannot be put together? Was that part of you wanting to live more fully as a Sikh, do you think? It was sort of that, but it also was for my own peace of mind because, you know, I started getting uh, sick of getting drunk and, and whatnot. And in a way, uh, I did set a transport company around 2004. That was better. I didn't drink because I was always involved in heavy vehicles. Uh, so it was sort of somewhat a business decision as well, but also as a personal decision to say, look, I want to change myself before I get married and start looking for a partner. So a lot of those things come into, uh, I would say, a migrant's life that might not happen to an average person that make you change, go where I want to be in the next couple of years. You've got to change today. Sikhism is hugely interesting. One of the founding principles, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that, quote, truth is the highest virtue, but higher still is truthful living. How do you respond to that when you hear a phrase like yeah, that? Yeah, that is actually one of our um, hymns from the Gurbani, the holy text. Um, you know, it says that a truthful living is above all. And that, again, equates to one of the three key principles that Sikhs have. Uh, one is to meditate, one shakana, nam japana, and kirtakarni. So meditate on the, the Lord's name, earn honest living, and share with others. And that's where it all comes in. So for you to have an honest living, an honest earning, you've got to be in a good job, not be involved in crime and other things. So that, again shapes who you are as a person that defines your life your lifestyle what you do with your family how you live around your family 
things that you do and you don't do. So a lot of that is a practical living way. That's what we always see, seek faith as a practical faith because you can't be a Sikh and not pray in the morning, pray in the afternoon, practice that goodness throughout your day. Because, you know, Sikhs always say this, that we are walking billboard of our faith. If I'm walking down the street smoking a cigarette, like, oh, it's a Sikh guy walking, you know, smoking a cigarette. Or if I'm throwing rubbish out of the car or if I'm being rude to people. So it all goes, you know, you're being rude. It's a monotheistic faith, isn't it? Like yeah. there's a single Godhead. Do Sikhs entertain the idea of karma and rebirth as well? That's right. So we believe in one God. We believe all the religions are different ways of getting to that one God. We don't believe there's you know, a variety of gods out there that your God is different to mine. So that's one thing. But also karma, that what you do in your life. Because uh, one of the, the key um, sort of ideologies in Sikhism is that you are born through all different forms of life. And then at one time you get the human life. That's where you can meditate, do good deeds, and then get out of this whole karma and in the cycle of life. The light inside you meets the internal light and then you're, you, know, you sort of complete your worldly journey. So that's what you work towards. That's why you've got to meditate, do the good deeds, because they all get counted in the end. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. One of the things I noticed while being in a Muslim city like in Istanbul or somewhere in Morocco is that the pausing to stop to pray is a really nice thing. It makes you stop in your day, recalibrate, have a moment of peace, maybe meditate over what you're doing at that point of time rather than always be rushing headlong into things. You're saying Sikh people do the same thing. They pause for prayer several times a day? We're not forced as such. We do have the morning and afternoon prayer. Uh, for example, when I was used to drive my trucks, I'll do my prayers in the truck. So if you're driving, you can recite the prayers or you can listen to an audio. But ideally, to sit down, have a shower, dress up nicely, sit on the floor, cross your legs and read from a holy book. Because when you, uh, the way it works in our faith is when you're reading Gurbani, the holy text, when you read, you purify your eyes because you're looking at the holy text. When you speak, you purify your tongue. And when you listen to yourself speak, reading the, the Gurbani, you purify your ears. So again, all of that sinks into you as a person. You know, it calms you down. And for me personally as a Sikh, I have seen some of the most, I would say, controversial decisions come to me when I'm praying, like forgiving people go, wow, this is really a divine intervention that I've got this thought now. You know, here you are waking up three, four in the morning to pray because that's the embarrassing time that we have in, in Sikh faith that you should wake up early, have a shower, cleanse your body, then meditate and then go about your daily business. And I also find that if I listen to normal music in the morning, my day is a different kind of energy. If I listen to uh, some sort of prayers, I have a usually a mellower version of me. Through the day, it's stuck in traffic. You know, you yeah. can listen to rap and go, "Oh my God, come on, everyone, let's go!" Or you can just listen to calm music and it sets your pace. So I think music, in that sense, plays a different role in your life as well. You've been baptized. There's a kind of Sikh form of baptism. Is it correct to call it baptism, or how, do, how does it work? It's easier said baptism because people can relate to it in a Western world, but it's more of an initiation ceremony. Um, so five initiated Sikhs uh, in front of the the holy scriptures you got to present yourself to them. You could be born in a Sikh faith and never be baptised or initiated. So you have to make a decision to go get to the next stage. So you go to them and you pledge that you're not going to live a sinful life, you're going to earn an honest living, and that's when they initiate you into the religion. Once you became a practising Sikh, what did that mean to you? How did you have to change your life? Not really change in much, but uh, some of the habits that I wanted to give up, such as drinking uh, or eating meat, it would just become second nature. So once you give that up, then it's about praying and meditating, uh, learning to play a harmonium, which is a, a 
classic instrument and there's a tabla as well that we use in our prayers. So I, I can sing a little bit of the prayers and it also helps you as a person because if you perform at the temple, it gives you a bit of a thing about performance in front of people as well, public speaking. So a lot of those things come in. But as a Sikh, what we do is very practical. To wash away your sins, you know, you go help out of the temple, you cook for others, you clean, you wipe the floors, you clean the toilets. Because we don't have a whole team of employed people at the temples. It's all run by volunteers. You mentioned there how prayer or a certain kind of music can set you up in a really nice way for the start of the day. How about putting on the turban at the start of the day? Does that set you in a good frame of mind? Exactly, it does. One thing I've noticed, uh, this just might be me, if I'm in an annoyed mood or I'm stressed out about something, usually I can't get my turban right because each layer of the turban you see here <laughs> is actually a piece of cloth. So it's not something you put on as a hat or a cap. You're tired. It's about 10 metres long. So I normally recite a prayer when I'm doing the turban. That's how it works for me best. Uh, it sets you in the mood, but then also some days you put on the turban and then end of the day when you're about to take it, you go, oh, gosh, I love it so much today. <laughs> you know, Let me take another look in the mirror before I take it off. <laughs> so is it a bit like a crown? Is, is, that, is there that aspect to it? For the Sikhs, it is a crown. It's a spiritual crown, but also back in the days when our gurus um, made it part of our attire and our dress code was to stand up to the Mughal rulers, you know, the guys that built the Taj Mahal. They wanted everyone to convert to Islam because that's how things were back in the days. Religious Religion was the key thing, you know, that drove everything. So our gurus stood up against that. So wearing a, a turban meant you were in the hierarchy of the society and also a challenge to the current leadership. So it was a sign of dissent? Pretty much, but also Sikhs have long hair, um, so to keep them tidy and neat. And our warrior turban, which I wear, actually used to have weapons around it. So if you're in a fight in the war zone, you had weapons around you had a steel ring around it, some other weapons in it. You could put a blade in there, could you? Wow, oh, yeah, a sword? Uh, the Nihangs, as they're right. called, the, the warrior class of uh, Sikhs, they wear the similar turbans. They actually have weapons around their turban. How putting on a turban every day change how other people saw you in Australia, do you think, Omar? I think put on a turban every day, people, some cases thought they could have an easy joke on you. You could be the joke of the, the room or, or, or the session. But it wasn't like that. If as a person you can stand up to yourself, I remember walking into sometimes in, in a trucking yard and go, oh, what's this thing on your head? Not really a very nice word. And me being me, I turn around and say, well, lucky I have something on my head, you're bold. And everyone laughed at him. So you got to have a bit of banter, but, you know, the banter turns into the ugly side at some stage and not everyone has the same mentality. And that's what bothers me, that we as an ethnic or as a turban-wearing Australian Sikh shouldn't be up for that joke. So that's just me. Maybe I'm being too too sort of touchy or too sensitive, but I think everyone should have a right to live and express themselves. Yeah, Australians do like to state the bleeding obvious. That's a big thing in Australia. Like I, one place I was working once, I, you know, every once in a while I had to wear a suit. I'd walk in and someone would go, mm, wearing a suit today. And it would happen every day. Like I, I wore a suit, mm, wearing a suit today. So I suppose, you, I suppose you have to sort of try and figure out in that moment if it's just like mm, wearing a suit today, mm, wearing a turban today, or whether there's something a bit more, mm, there's a bit of an edge to it, I suppose. You're right. You do have, uh, you know, people that make a joke and that's fine, totally acceptable. You know, people ask me, the why you're so jolly at times. I said, look, because I'm, I've spent a lot of my time in transport where you've got to have a joke with the forky and the, and the transport operator. That's how day goes by. Otherwise, it's a sad world. But then <laughs> there is the line that people cross in the way they present themselves, the way uh, they're forming that joke on you, the, the way they say it. And that's what you make, pick up and go, this is not right. You know, other people are coming to, how long does it take you to turban? Don't you get hot? You answer those questions because that's somebody wanting to know who you are and how you are. But somebody going... Doesn't that shit get hot on your head? I'm sorry if I use the wrong word. <laughs> That's right. You know? And that, you go like, mate, it's my pride. Do you mind? So, again, you can pick up from their vibes how they are talking and how they are trying to challenge you in some sense that you're not fitting in. So I don't think there's a typical Australian body or colour of skin or way of life. We all come from different cultures, experiences, food, and that's bloody great about our country. You mentioned that you were running a, a trucking company. And there was a kind of a critical moment when you 
were on a work trip driving trucks down to Wollongong. Tell me about that incident. So I was training a driver who was actually from a Muslim faith, uh, but he didn't have the beer or the turban. Uh, you would see, I would say, probably 98% people that were in uh, a turban in Australia are Sikhs. Uh, we do have the, the Mendeen community from Iraq that wear the turbans now as well, but for predominantly Sikhs. So I was training him, and then uh, we pull up in this laneway to unload, as you do with trucks, and this bloke has a joke. Oh, who's this guy with you? He goes, oh, that's my boss. He goes, oh, he looks like a terrorist. He should be on a watch list. And he's having a cigarette sitting on a milk crate. And I'm trying to put the hydraulic lifter down. And I turn around and I said, do you mind, buddy? You know, just have your cigarette and, and bugger off. And when I said that, he, could, he got the idea that I can speak English. I can talk back. And then, oh, no, just a joke, mate. I said, I don't want your bloody joke. Just bugger off. That shouldn't be the case. You know, somebody to say you're a terrorist is a huge insult. That what bothers me the most. And those sort of things is what got me ticked off in a way that I want to do something, change the society around me. And you know what? I'm so grateful and glad that I'm in Australia and the beautiful society we have around us because if it wasn't accepting, I wouldn't be sitting right here where I'm today. I wouldn't be amassing. I would be made to be a Joe or a David or something else. We don't convert everyone. We don't assimilate everyone. We accept it. But there is a phase people go through. That can be a troublesome area. So what did you decide to do about it after that incident? Well, after that, um, I started to start a charity. I said, look, I want to help. Being from trucking background, I said, you know, our community is getting into trucking. Let's use trucking and our, our principles to help out. That's when I heard 2GB going about droughts and stuff on the radio. Like, wow, that's really scary. People are killing themselves because coming from a, a Punjab is a farming state. We have a lot of that issue where farmers will take loans from banks and they'll commit suicide because they can't repay. And that was a big shock to me. Go, really, Australians are killing themselves because the bank's repossessing their farm? So that sort of bothered me. Like, wow, this, is, this problem is huge. We should do something about it. So the first trip we did, we got a couple, a couple of vans and a ute together of groceries. We linked up with Salvers in Dubbo, and we turned up there. And you know these little things, uh, little markers and milestones in your journey of being that person and what we experienced from that time. We got there, unloaded, and the chaplain was very nice. He goes, oh, what do you guys eat? Uh, so we're vegetarian. So he ordered vegetarian Indian meals from the local restaurant. And we were sitting around a table after unloading, and he goes, would you mind if I say a grace? I said, oh, please go. Um, he said the grace, and we were just all looking at each other, oh, my God. You know, we have Ardas in our temples, which is the final prayer. In that, we sort of bless the whole congregation, bless people who donated, bless, you know, people who volunteered today to make the food for everyone. That's the thing that the chaplain was saying. That, to me, was learning on the go-go, oh, my God. So, you know, God is one. He just listens to us in a different language because we speak the different languages. And that was sort of universal love and mateship that came from that and go, this is bloody fun. We've got to do more of this. So this is the founding of Turbans for Australia. This is you and fellow Sikh people That's right. looking to do this kind of volunteer work. Are there Sikh communities in regional Australia? Sikhs have been in rural areas for as long as time can remember. Coffs Harbour, Griffith... Shepparton, Renmark, Swan Hill, all of those areas have a lot large Sikh population. In fact, one of the first Sikh temples was built in Kofsawa near Bulgulga. And that was early in the days. And Sikhs came into Australia under the White Australia policy as well because they were British subject, so they were exempt from that uh, policy as hawkers. And a lot of research has been done into that. And many people that have seen go, oh, we used to get a Sikh hawker on a, on a horse-driven cart and used to come and sell stuff to us. So a lot of that stuff happens. Uh, there are times when locals will hear from our social media following and go, oh, you're coming to our town, or generally people link up. And they go, oh, yeah, we want to share because, you know, we do share the posters early enough on, through our social media. Uh, a great example during COVID, when we started our COVID kitchen in Liverpool, other communities rang up from Canberra, from Dubbo, from Wollongong, uh, you know, Gold Coast, Brisbane. They're like, oh, we want to help. Well, this is how you help. This is what we will give you. You start up in your own town. And that sort of brought up little COVID relief centres right across the state and, and interstate. Um, in 2015, you did a hay run, taking hay from Camden 
to Canamble during the drought of 2015. What do you remember of that country, travelling through the drought-afflicted country? I mean, even telling some of the people in our community the name Canamble. Like, where is that in Australia? We don't generally deal with all these regional towns, but it was fun. I teamed up with uh, through Facebook with another charity out of Bendigo. So they said, look, we can go to this town, we need hay. So we fundraised, collected the hay, uh, we bought it from Camden, and then it just sort of worked out from Camden to Canamble kind of thing. But it was a huge learning experience again. I didn't know what hay was, how it worked, what's the best hay. So doing a lot of research around that, uh, getting the trucks on board. Uh, we had a couple of trucks from our community, one of my own trucks, and another big company from the ports that I was delivering at. I said, we're doing this hay run for the farmers. Would you like to come on board as a partner you can give us a truck send them an email you know two hours later they're oh we're in so getting those people together giving back from a trucking community giving back from our ethnic community for the regionals because the little research i did that they're so disadvantaged nothing gets to them because we're on such a big land a big country and many charities sort of go that's the last thing they want to do is sending trucks out to regional communities but that's how they survive we need those trucks to go out with goodies on board to help during disaster. What kind of people do you meet when you take hay out to a place like Canamble? We meet glorious human beings, wonderful people, wonderful souls, and I can't speak highly enough of them. From one bloke at Canamble who shook my hand and said, look, I'm going to come back because we were staying the night there. And he come back at night when we were sitting around the little campfire. And he come back and he goes, I really wanted to thank you in person because he had to go do some other business. But that's the sort of people they are, you know, seeing those people in cowboy hats and blue singlets and us sitting there as migrants. And it's education both ways, uh, educating our community and migrant communities, uh, Australians, no matter what faith, what town they're from, just human beings and vice versa. It, it's, it's absolutely something the words can't describe. But getting those towns and helping them out and then them seeing that these people have nothing to do with our town. They're just here to help. I mean, how good is that? Because we can link on a humanity level. We don't need to be part of the town to help. We're just there to help as mates. I suppose when you're living in a drought-afflicted community, you might be able to tell yourself a story that no-one really cares and no-one's going to take an interest. We're, we're slowly we're about to disappear off the land here. And then this lovely group of people show up, completely altruistically, do this lovely thing for you. Just to even know people care must be something for them. Exactly. I think what we do when we go out to these towns is not just the, the stock and the materialistic things we take. It's also the hope and the mateship. To say somebody cares for you, especially coming from the big cities, you know, they have this like big divide between city and rural. For us to come out there and the Australians that thought last would be them to help and turning up to those towns, it's absolutely an uh, act of solidarity as well because we rely on the farmers to produce everything for us, for them to be killing the cattle, you know, putting them down these breed lines that they're breeders as well, and so many things they're losing every day and their kids are suffering, their families are suffering. For us to make a small Im impact on their life, to say, look, it's okay, it's a phase, it'll be over, that's the best thing yeah, about what I do. A lot of people living out in a place like Canaveral tend to lean towards country music. What kind of music exchange did you have when you went out to Canaveral, Amar? <sighs> Well, it was fun music exchange, I tell you. They had some DJ going, just a makeshift DJ, because uh, we acknowledged some of our drivers as well to say thank you for all the effort. And then one of the guys plugged in his phone to the speaker and we had Bhangra music going and all of a sudden people are dancing around Bhangra and our guys got involved and some of the locals, I know, Karen and, and uh, you know, uh, Anita and some of the other girls jumped in. It was just a hoo-ha, you know, us kicking feet around in dirt and having fun. And it took all the tiredness away. <laughs> More recently, you've spent a lot of time up in Lismore helping out after the uh, terrible floods there. What did you see when you went up to Lismore and the flood-affected areas around the northern rivers of New South Wales, Omar? Look, Lismore still bothers me. In fact, I was this morning uh, with some of the, the people from Lismore thinking it's the same house, same caravan, same tent, 12 months on. We're not doing it right. We are treating our fellow Australians fellow people from the country, from the bush, as second-class citizens. And that really bothers me. We went there in the very first week of the floods. We were walking around in mud. It was scary. Half of the roads were still out. We had to go into Lismore via a casino graft on the back way 
in some of the patches, the, the bitumen was just busy. It was just red dirt. You drove through it and there was no signal for phones. It was very scary, but today as well, Lismore is still suffering. I know a lot of people will say, oh, they live in a floodplain, but that does not matter. When we want to go to enjoy solace away from the city, we go to these small towns because that's what they are. They're beautiful, nature-loving people, small cafes, small shops, and a country feeling. And why are we treating them separately? We were talking earlier about that incident in Wollongong when you were there with a, a new driver for your trucking firm and the guy made a remark saying you should be on a terrorist watch list, mate, and then sort of recoiled after you confronted him about it. What's the sequel to that story? There is, um, because uh, I remember uh, ringing up Ray Hadley and inviting him to our temple. I Ray said, Hadley, the 2GB radio, talkback radio host. Yep. Yes. You invited him to the temple. Yes, I did. Because for me, I was like, I hear this bloke talking to random people on the phone because, you know, they all ring back on his talk line and other things. So why don't I do that? So again, it was just me taking a leap of faith. I did. I invited him live on air. He came out and I shared that story with him in the car park as he was about to leave. You know, we we're just chit-chatting. And then I rang him again on the Monday to thank him for the visit because for us, that was a huge friendship because some people in the in the community were worried as well. Oh, Ray Hadley, the, he's this or he's that. I said, mate, he's a person. Come in to visit our community. If you're going to lock our gates, then don't expect people to know you. And that's what he did. He come out, spent an hour or so, spoke to a lot of people, walked around the temple, had food. And when I shared the story with him and I thanked him on air, that bloke was listening to his show. The bloke in Wollongong yes. who told, yeah. who said you should be on a terrorist watch list. Yes. He was listening in. He was listening in and he rang him and apologised on air. And then Ray goes, Amar's a good bloke. I'll give you his number. You should talk to him. And then he rang me afterwards because I was actually on the truck that day. So after I made the phone call, then I started driving off. And then this guy rings me a bit later and said, oh, this is me, mate. I apologise, you know. Next time you're down to the, the coast, we should have a coffee. That what really changed my life, that if we start reaching out to the people, even the ones that don't like us, we can change them through education and love and compassion. You can only have a punch up with so many people and expect them to change, but through love, compassion, and make sure we can change the whole world. And that's what we did. It's a pretty decent thing to do, to ring up and apologise. Clearly he was a bit tormented by what he'd done and wasn't proud of it at all. No, he wasn't. He said it was just a joke. And I said, mate, where I'm from, I get this joke 365 days a year. And it's not funny. When people want to make a comment and make you feel second class, that's just not on. But for that guy to apologise, it was a very humbling insight moment for me as well. I go, wow, you can actually reach out to these people through media, through people, through your work. Um, and that's what we started sort of getting out and go, let's, let's do it seriously. I said at the outset that the work makes you happy. I, th I thought as I said that, I don't, do I know that for sure? I'm not sure I do know that for sure. Does it make you happy? You seem like a happy, very happy man to me. Does it make you happy or is it something you just should do and sometimes you have to sort of push yourself through it? I think I get happiness from it. That, let's be honest. It, it's a great buzz, not just by what I do, but what I receive from my own community as well. Young kids coming up to say, hey, uncle, we love what you do. We love when you go in media and represent our community for every migrant community to have a positive media story is a big tick of approval. So by me doing what I do, it makes a lot of people happy, the people that receive my help, people in the community who see me uh, as somewhat a role model. The buzz you get out of this work, you know, random people giving you $50 or $100 at a service station, you go, wow, this is huge. So for me, connecting to people on a human level through the charity, through our work and keep going is absolutely beyond words. Just bringing Bungaroo music to regional Australia is a, <laughs> a huge step up too, isn't it? I mean, just the spectacle of watching some blue singlet blokes and, and other people dancing to Bungaroo music when they've been having such a rotten time of things is, is delightful, I think, isn't it? It must have been delightful to take part in that. It was crazy. I told you, even I remember Karen, she got a, a towel and put her around her head. You think he's a turban. <laughs> you know, everything goes in that sort of fun environment. It was blissful, mate, to be honest. Absolutely amazing and uh, made some good friends from that town. You've got kids now, two kids. Do they watch you doing this work and absorb lessons from that or are they a bit like a lot of kids just don't want to know what dad does? 
they do quite enjoy. We have, in fact, a lot of our volunteers, they'll bring their kids in as well uh, from all faiths and all backgrounds. And many from our own community come and help as well. And it's, it's a learning curve from them to say they should be grateful for what they have. Because, you know, the food that they reject on the dining table, that's the food somebody else doesn't have. And many of the kids will come in, help us pack hampers, you know, put cardboard rubbish in the bin. They get a learning from it. My son, in fact, if he sees somebody with hazards on, on a motorway, dad, you have to stop and help them. He thinks I'm some sort of genius mechanic or a handyman. <laughs> I tell him, look, actually, he, could, he probably called a tow truck. So a lot of that washes on to the kids as well, which is great. You want them to take this country as their home and help out people and see everyone as human. So how do you reflect on your experience now, in, if you can, in totality, as a migrant to Australia who's become honoured as a local hero of Australia who's nonetheless copped a bit of that evil stuff along the way? Have you arrived at some kind of view of it all, Amar? Um, not really. I think it's a journey. Let's see where this journey takes us further. But again, I'm grateful for even every bad experience I've had in life because that some, some way shaped me. Every blow that you hit on a you know, piece of water or metal shapes the metal. So that's what I see it as. But how we react to it and bring it positive in us into life, been my journey so far. Being a local hero, being a charity person, being a person of Sikh faith, being an Australian, for me is all part of my package. And I think if I can leave a legacy for future migrants, for people of colour, people of faith, to say Australia is a country where you can have a go in the true sense because I can put my rubber stamp on it, it will make something of it. And it's a beautiful country. Let's make it our home and make it a beautiful place for future generations. You know, the Aboriginal community has cared for this land for thousands of generations. Now it's our time to care for this, this tiny lifetime to make it in a better place for the next generation. It's so great speaking with you, Amar. I've really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you so much, Amar. I have too, mate. Amar Singh is the Australia Day local hero for 2023. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.